We're thankful, Father, that you sent your Son, and we're thankful, Jesus, that you came. We're thankful that you cloaked your deity with humanity. You lived among us. You never sinned. You lived a completely righteous life, and we're thankful that at the end of your life, you gave your life up for ours. You are the Savior. We thank you that when you ascended, you left your Spirit with us, and Spirit of God, we thank you that you're here with us today. So may you move in our midst, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It has been such a joy and a delight to be able to preach here this fall. If you're a guest this morning, I am not the pastor of this church, and I've had the privilege of preaching here since the end of September, and so thank you for letting me do so. And as I've taken you through various encounters with Jesus through the Gospels, my prayer is that you have seen the glory and the beauty of who Jesus is and how great he is and how wonderful he is and he is the Savior. And so I pray that through this series you've fallen more in love with Jesus through this time. But as we conclude our four-week Advent series on experiencing love in Advent, sometimes we all know that Christmas is messy. Sometimes Christmas is messy. Sometimes it's messy because there's people coming to your home later today or tomorrow that you don't want to have over. You just don't want them there. Maybe you're going somewhere and they don't want you there. And you know it. Sometimes it's messy because you opened up a gift and you're certain that your husband and children cannot listen because it's not what you asked for. Sometimes it's messy. Today, Amy needs to go and open her store after the service. And she said to me, I just need a few things after the service from Costco. I don't shop. And today at Costco, I am certain I am going to be filled with joy when I am there. And so I will be there. Sometimes it's messy. I mean, sometimes the messiness is really difficult, right? Sometimes the messiness is really hard. There's news of terminal illness. There's death. I took a funeral yesterday. It's hard. I mean, sometimes it's funny, the things that happen, like we talked about earlier, and sometimes they're difficult. Last year, I was biking from the gym um, near the end of December, like just before Christmas, and as I was cycling from the gym by the trails at Mac, there was 200 or 250 people all gathered, and there must have been two dozen Santas. It was a Santa run. So this photographer just asked if I'll stop, so I stop on my bike, and I pause, and he says, well, just be a minute. Kids are crying, like they're crying, wailing, crying. And they're saying things like, why are there so many Santas? And isn't there only one Santa? And, and they're just screaming. And I looked at the photographer and said, I don't think this will just take a minute. And then, and then one of the Santas goes over to the group of small children and pulls down his beard and says, I'm not him. And they start to scream. It's not real. The beards aren't real. And then one of the older kids, who's maybe 13, thinks he's going to calm everyone down. And he says, it's not just his beard that's not real. Santa isn't real. Well, that didn't help at all. <laughs> now the kids are screaming, and he goes on to say, do you want to know who Santa is? Santa's really, and his dad looked at him and said, if you finish that sentence, you're not living at our house anymore, and there's no Christmas for you. And so I looked at the photographer at that point and said, I really need to go. He said, yeah, we're going to be a while. And I went through. When we come to Christmas, there are some things that are really familiar to us. We hear the story of the Magi coming to visit Jesus, and there are many assumptions that we make. We assume they were kings, we three kings. 
But that's never mentioned in the text. As far as we know, they were not kings. They were magi. They're astrologers and astronomers combined together, likely caught up in even some type of magic. But they're never mentioned in the text that there's kings. We assume there's three, but the text never says that. The text never says there's three. Was there one? Were there five? We assume there's three because there were three gifts. Where were they from? Well, we know they're from the east, but we don't know where. Babylon? Persia? Arabia? We don't know exactly where they're from. When did they come? Well, they came to a house. So they're not there the night of the manger scene. So if you have them with your manger scene, move them off. Let's be accurate in our doctrine. They don't belong in the manger scene. I won't comment on the manger scene in the downstairs foyer. I'll just keep going. Matthew 2, beginning at verse 1. I'll stutter step through the text. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him. So we have here comment by Matthew that Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. We looked at that text, two of them, the last couple of weeks through the Gospel of Luke. And this is the reign of King Herod. This is Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who became in about 40 BC, he was selected by the Roman Senate as the Romans occupied Israel at this time and Jerusalem. He was given the reign over Judea and he was named King Herod. So that happened about 40 BC. He was wealthy. He was a gifted administrator. You can read secular accounts of this. His ability to relieve famine was unparalleled. And his ability not just to relieve famine, but his ability to build as a builder. He rebuilt the temple. He rebuilt some of the magnificent works found in that area. Was again unparalleled. He had lots of flaws though. He was a very difficult man. And the Magi come. They come from the east. They go to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. Why do they show up at Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem, of course, is the capital. So somehow they have been studying Jewish history. Somehow they know that Messiah is going to come. They've seen the star as they study stars that God provided, that declares that this Messiah, this Christ, has been born. And they come, of course, to the palace to say, where is the king of the Jews? Now, when you come to the palace to ask where the king of the Jews are or is, and you're talking to the person who claims to be the king of the Jews, there's a problem. Everybody got that, right? Because you're now saying, where is the king of the Jews? And he's saying, I'm sitting on my throne right here. But of course, he doesn't say that. He knows what's happened or what's supposed to occur from history, from biblical tradition. And he offers some thoughts. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. This is from Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I may go and worship him too, or also. Notice verse 3, King Herod was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod was upset with one of his wives, he had her executed. He had two of his sons executed. You did not want to be on Herod's bad side. Herod would just eliminate anyone he didn't like, including family members. I mean, you think your Christmas is going to be messy today? Imagine theirs. I mean, they didn't have Christmas, but celebrations, gatherings. Didn't you get rid of mom last year? Where, where are my brothers? I mean, that's Herod. And so Jerusalem is disturbed because Herod is disturbed, and this is in his later years. I mean, Jesus is likely born about 5 BC. Now that just threw some of you. But that's likely when he's born, about then. You know that the dating didn't start till 515, right, with Dionysus? And so it's not until about the 9th century that the dating that we know today, B.C. and E. day, actually took root, right? They weren't, they didn't, it was not like Jesus showed up and someone said, oh, let's start with one right now. I didn't even know he showed up. It didn't happen until about 515 A.D. And then it didn't take root to about 900, the 9th century. And so because of that, likely Herod dies in 4 B.C. We know that. That's historically accurate. So if Jesus is born before Herod dies, Jesus is likely born in what we would consider 5 B.C. And they just didn't, you know, when Dionysus was working back the math, just didn't have the same means of calculation that we do today and the means of history and the wealth of archaeological finds that we have now in the 5th century. So Herod's disturbed. He's at the end of his life. People know that he's not well at this point in time. And if he's disturbed, they're nervous about what he's going to do so all of Jerusalem is disturbed with him so he calls together the chief priests teachers of the law and he said where's the Messiah to be born he, he knows who the Magi are talking about he, he knows who they're referring to you're talking about the Magi you're talking about the one that's been promised where is it said he'll be born well Bethlehem they say so then Herod calls the Magi secretly and says go he finds out from them the exact time the star appeared and he says Search for the child carefully. When you find him, let me know. I want to worship him as well. Note the contrast here, though, from Micah 5 and Herod. Herod is arrogant, pompous. Did you hear what Micah 5 quoted here in Matthew says about Jesus, the ruler? Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This Messiah, this Christ, will be a shepherd to the hearts of his people. He will be gentle. He will be kind. Verse 9. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the house with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented them with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So this is a star that appeared that God allowed to come at the birth of Christ. 
Lots of people speculate as to what this star is. Nobody truly knows. Lots of speculation on it. But a star appears. It's not like the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that the Israelites follow through the desert. It's not like this star is kind of meandering and they're wandering behind it. The star is positioned. They end up in Jerusalem. The star at that point in time they can't see. Maybe it's a cloudy night. I don't know. The cloud the clouds break or the star reappears if God hid the cloud for a moment. They're overjoyed, and it's not like it's hanging 20 feet over the house. I mean, everybody would have noticed that, right? If you saw a star 20 feet above your neighbor's house, wouldn't that hit the news, right? This star is in the sky. They specialize in astrology. They follow the star to the house, and they get there. They're overjoyed when they see the star. They come and they present gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. We know what gold is. You can hear the worth of gold every day if you listen to the news. Gold is still that by which we measure wealth on this planet. Frankincense was a gum-like substance that could be made into some type of perfume or lotion. Myrrh, again, similar, often made into spice or perfumes. They were fragrances, and they're expensive. That's why people said they were kings. But the text never says that. It calls them magi. I want you to note something really important here. They gather there around Jesus, having been led by the star. They hear the account of who the Messiah is as they're searching, right, from the chief priests in Herod's palace. And they realize that they're in presence of the Messiah, and they worship him. Some say that this isn't true worship. It's the homage they would pay to any king. But the way the text is used and the way Matthew used worship anywhere in his gospel, I would say that this is worship, the way we would understand worship. They're recognizing who they're in the presence of. And it shows us that the shepherds who heard first and learned of the birth of the Messiah, who were Jews, God's chosen people, as we would expect, that God graciously sends the gospel also to the Gentiles. And Gentiles, not just near, Gentiles from far off. And it shows that God's grace, though he had chosen a people to work through, he's now going to extend to the world. It shows that God's grace is about to extend to everyone. I said this a few weeks ago, but most of us sitting here this morning are not Jews. We are Gentiles. And aren't you thankful that God has extended his covenant and grace to the Gentiles? Amen? And it started with the Magi showing up here. And as they show up and they worship him, they recognize they're in the presence of the Messiah, the Christ. And they offer gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then Herod warns them in a dream not to go back. But God loves, he delights to save people from every language, every nation, every culture, every tribe. Do you know that today in Asia, it's said that there are 100, or sorry, 215 million evangelicals. This is the evangelical count by Lifeway that came out last year. 215 million evangelicals in Asia. 185 million evangelicals in Africa. 123 million million evangelicals in South America. 
I shared this when I shared about the resurrection a number of weeks ago. But the gospel is the only religion on the planet where God is converting people from every language and custom and culture and tribe. When you study world religions, you can see that the world religions of our world are focused at the place of origin. Oh, people move by migration, but they're focused by the place of origin. That's where you'll find the greatest populace of any religion. Islam, Sikhism, Buddhism. You can study them, Hinduism. But it's not true with Christianity. Christianity begins in the Middle East. And God chooses to move it from place to place to Europe, to the Western world, now to where myriads of people, hundreds of millions of people, he is saving through the Southern Hemisphere because Jesus Christ indeed is alive and he's a God who converts and saves as the Savior from every language and custom and culture and tribe. It is the good news of the gospel. And these magi experience it as the first Gentiles who see and come into contact with the Messiah. He loves to save. He loves to save. I think of Katha. Katha is one of the young men from the Karen congregation downtown, born in Myanmar. He was coming to the study with his 18 or so friends, many of whom had come to faith in Christ and we had baptized. And he's coming week after week after week and month after month after month. And he and I dialogued so many times about the gospel. And I remember him saying he was just having such a hard time with this about Christians or that about Christians or this about Christianity or this about the Karen church and all these things. And I remember saying to him at one point, Katha, it's not about all of that. It's about who Jesus is. Is Jesus indeed the Savior, the Christ, the Lord? Is he God the Son come down? Has he incarnated himself? Katha, this is about who Jesus is. This is about who Jesus is. Well, I left James North in January, and at that point in time, God hadn't saved him. He called me this fall. Gave me a call. I can't remember where I was. I think I was driving between Woodstock and here, and said, Pastor, I want you to know God has saved me. And I said, how do you know? Because I've come to realize who Jesus is. He's God the Son. Come down for me. It is good news of great joy. I think of David. He's a philanthropist that I met when we were going through our capital campaign. Lives in the Toronto area. He said he was 34 years old, wife, three kids, and he had just netted his first million. His company was grossing millions of dollars and he could write himself a million dollar check every year. He said, I had everything. We had everything we wanted, everything I wanted. He said, I sat down with one of my closest friends, a friend I'd known from high school, and we were sitting across the table from each other. And I said to this friend, I said, I've got everything I want. I've got everything I need. I don't lack anything. He said, my friend looked at me across the table and said, you think you have everything, but you actually have nothing. He said, how can you say that? He said, I began to explain to him all the things I owned and all the things I had. I have a great wife. I have wonderful kids. There's nothing we want for Said, oh, he said, until you have Jesus, my friend said, until you have Jesus, you have nothing. David said, it spiraled me to begin to search. What did he mean by this? Could he be true? I mean, I felt happy. I felt fulfilled. But he said, I began to read through the Bible. He began to offer to meet with me on a regular basis. We began to meet every three or four weeks. And then my wife joined our study and God saved her first. 
said, God gloriously opened my wife's eyes to the truth. And then a few months later, God saved me. I mean, he now supports missions all over the world. His company is it's enormous. And I remember him looking at me and saying across the table, he said, I live in a smaller house than I did then. I live with less stuff than I did then. And I have more meaning now than I ever had in all those years. Because Jesus has saved me. And I know him. It is the good news of great joy. It is the gospel. It is the love of Christmas. Verse 13. Well, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother. Escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So when he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, he stayed there until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, this is Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. Some people wonder why Jesus received gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Can I tell you why? It's how God provided for Mary and Joseph to escape to Egypt. It was the way God provided for a young Jewish family to go to a place where they likely couldn't work, where Joseph didn't know the language, would have had a hard time as a foreigner getting work. If you've moved to another country as a foreigner, not brought by some conglomerate, and you're trying to get work, you know how hard it is. So there's Joseph not knowing the language in Egypt, and God's going to take care of his son. God's going to preserve his son. Herod is going to want to kill him. God warns Joseph in a dream, but he's already provided the means for them to escape to Egypt and to survive in Egypt. Now, maybe they went, some people, you know, they espouse it. Maybe they went to Alexandria, which is a Jewish settlement in the Egypt area, possible. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe they went there, I don't know. I just know that God provided through these magi, these Gentiles, so that he could escape. And they stayed until the death of Herod, which is 4 BC. They stayed in Egypt. We don't know how long. Was it a few weeks? Was it a few months? The text doesn't say. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he's furious. He gives order to kill the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity. Anyone who was two years old, any boy who was two years old and under, in accordance with the time when he'd learned from the Magi, then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah 31, 15, was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life is dead. The only account we have of this in any historical record of the death of the children in Bethlehem is here in the Bible. And so some people then doubt that this is literal, that it happened. But it's actually not implausible. We believe the Bible, of course, is God's word, but even historically, Herod would murder whole families and areas without a lot of account. Herod would go on rampages. So Bethlehem, like I said a couple of weeks ago, it's like 1,000 to 1,500 people. Estimates would say there may have been 12 children that were there that were two and under, five or six boys. So although 
It's an atrocity. Although it's horrific, although the slaughtering of these children is evil and awful, it wasn't newsworthy. It was just Herod being Herod. And he slaughtered the boys that were there. This is how we know Jesus was between zero and two, likely a year of age, right? He probably went up a bit higher just to ensure. He finds out when the star appears and he comes and he has anyone under two slaughter because he knows then he's got the Messiah. He's got Jesus. And Joseph, who's in Egypt, finds out that Herod has died and he's told now that he can go to take the child to the land of Israel. The king has been born. Jesus has come. He offers good news of great joy for everyone who believes, including the Gentiles, that's us. And evil will oppose him. It did through his life. When he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness and Satan tempts him. When people pick up stones to stone him because they accuse him of blasphemy, you, a mere man, claim to be God. When he hangs on the cross and the Romans are killing him, and Satan and sin and death are throwing everything they can at him. Evil will oppose Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us. The world wants nothing to do with him. Oh, they'll hang up a wreath and put up a tree. Oh, this time of year, they'll even sing a carol in his name. And you can hear them played across the radio. And praise God for that, for that great witness. But you engage in real conversation about who Christ is. You declare the truth of what it means to unbelievers. And often you can just find yourself very quickly in a place of opposition, a place of frustration. As people don't want this to be the truth. They don't want this to be what's real. And so Satan and sin and death will throw everything they can at him on the cross. I talked about this last week when we talked about Jesus being the redemption of Israel. That means that he's the one who will buy us back. That he's the one who will purchase us. I gave an illustration where a boy had built a boat. He lost the boat on the waters. He was about 12 when he built the boat. It was beautifully made. Another boy found it, sold it to the local five and dime, and the boy bought it back. He saved up money to do so. And he said about the boat, it's twice mine. I made you, and now I've bought you back. That's what's happened on the cross. We've been made by God. We chose to rebel against him. God could have left us in that state of rebellion. And in leaving us in that state of rebellion, we would deserve separation from God. And that would mean upon our death, we would be in a place where there'd be no joy and be no hope and no, be no peace and be no love. That all we would experience forever and ever is an alone isolation with no hope or joy or love or peace, hell. But God's love for us was so great. God's love for you was so great that he himself decided to do something about our predicament. That he himself decided as God the Son that he would cloak his deity with humanity, the second person of our triune God, that he would enter in, that he confined himself to a woman's womb, that he'd be born in humble belongings, in a stable, in a manger, 
that the shepherds will be the first to come to acknowledge, and then according to scripture, Anna and Simeon soon after, that the Magi would show up to allow his escape to Egypt and subsequent journey back to Israel, that he would live a sinless life, he would never do anything wrong. You see, because humanity had sinned, humanity deserved to die. Humanity had to bear the wrath of God's justice. But because of God's love, Jesus became our representative. He never sinned. His righteous life is just as critical as his death. And on the cross, he gives his life up for us. In the book of Hebrews, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its pain. Do you know what that joy was? What's different because of the cross? What's different because of the cross? The joy he had on the cross was knowing that he was bringing glory to the Father because by his blood, he would be able to save and redeem humanity. By his blood, for anyone who would turn to him, for anyone who would trust in his name, for anyone who would want to know him, for anyone who would call out to him, he would be able to save. And it doesn't matter what you've done, and it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter if you're a middle-class shepherd or if you're a wealthy magi. It doesn't matter who you are. When you come to the point and place where you recognize your need for a Savior and you turn to him, he'll never turn you away. Instead, he welcomes you in. On the cross, he was cast out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that he could adopt us into his family. That's the good news of the gospel. And he defeated sin and Satan and death as the wrath of the Father is poured out on him. And Corinthians tells us that he who had no sin became our sin so that he could grant us his righteousness. You've heard me say this through this series, but God treated Christ the way I deserved on the cross. He treated Christ the way I deserved and his wrath was poured out on him so that God could treat me the way Christ deserves in glory. When we stand before God in judgment one day, he will not treat me as I deserve. He will see his son. And as one who's been adopted into his family, he will treat me the way Jesus deserves. It is the great news and hope of the gospel. And the resurrection declares that Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death. And the ascension, when Jesus ascended, declares that he is the king of the universe. Verse 21. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, this is one of his sons, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth is just a small, obscure village just backwater, Jerusalem, or Israel. It's just a small, obscure town. But this is what God specializes in. The Messiah shows up in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, the capital, in a stable, not a palace, to impoverished parents who couldn't afford a lamb for their sacrifice, but instead had to purchase the poor person's sacrifice. Because God loves to work for the weak. 
so that he may be glorified and honored, that he may be seen. And so I close with these thoughts. What does this mean? One, Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. He is the second person of the triune God who has come down. That's why the angel said he is the Savior, Christ the Lord. What qualifies him to be the Savior? Well, he is the Lord. He is the Lord. What qualifies him to be the Christ? That all the Old Testament can be fulfilled in him. That he would never sin and break the law. What qualifies? Well, he's the Lord. Because he's the Lord, he can be the Savior. Because he's the Lord, he can be the Christ. He can do what none of us could do. Accomplish what none of us could accomplish. You see, none of us could ever make our way to him. He made his way to us so that he could bring us to himself. And because of that, he's worthy of our worship too. Evil will oppose him. It shouldn't surprise us. Herod opposed him. Satan opposed him. The Jewish leaders opposed him. Evil will oppose Jesus. And it shouldn't surprise us to this day that people will oppose him. Maybe you're sitting here today and a family member or friend dragged you in. Do you oppose Jesus today? Are you sitting here like, I, I don't want him to save me. I don't need him to save me. Are you opposing Jesus today? Maybe you're listening online. Are you opposing Jesus this day? Or have you surrendered yourself to him as Savior? Because he is the king. He is the king. The Magi said it. Where is the king who was born? He was the king and he is the king. He was declared king from all of eternity, declared king at his birth, and he is the reigning king now. He has always been and will be the king. He is the king. The king of kings and lord of lords. That's who he is. And he's reigning on high this day. You can come before him with anything and he hears you at any time because he loved you. And lastly, he loves to save. He loves to save. He delights in doing so. Is that not good news? When I was a young boy, I was only four or five years of age. God reached into my heart, let me know that I was a sinner and in need of repentance, and turned my heart to him and saved me. He loves to save. When my wife was a teenager, Amy, raised in a non-Christian home, a friend of hers began to share the gospel with her, and God reached into her heart and saved her. He loves to save. He loves to save people from every language and custom and culture and tribe. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, could he love me? Dwayne, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that he can save anyone. He can save anyone. If you haven't been here through these weeks, I've told you the story of Kesavan. He's become a friend of mine. Raised in a Hindu home, 19 years of age, in retaliation for a gang member of his gang that was brutally beaten, he murders another man who had helped to beat his young friend. Incarcerated for 10 years, and during that time, God saves him. And I was in Newfoundland with him a couple weeks ago. He was just recounting the glorious good news of God and his salvation in his life and what that looks like. How could God save me? Why would God save me? Because God loves to save. And maybe you're sitting here today and you have not yet embraced the good news of great joy at Christmas that God loves to save. I just want to say this to you. 
God's brought you here this morning for reason and purpose. And if you've felt his spirit working in you, nudging you toward him, don't turn from him this day, but trust him as your savior. He longs to embrace you as savior. I remember speaking at Fair Havens a number of years ago, and at the end of the night, a number of young people wanted to either confirm their salvation or wanted to trust Christ as Savior. I was with the leadership, the young, well, the teenagers, the kids that helped run the camp. I remember one of the young men waited for me till the end of the night, and we sat and talked for a long time. I knew his family. He'd grown up in this godly Christian home, and I thought maybe he was doubting his salvation, but at the end of our talk, I said, I, I don't think you're saved. And I prayed with him to receive Christ. I mean, he prayed. We were talking. I remember seeing him about three weeks later. Amy and I were back at the camp with our kids, and I was speaking at the camp, and he was running by me, organizing some activities, and I said to him, how are you? He was running by, and he looked at me, and he said, I'm saved. That's how I am. I know I'm saved. He can save anyone because he delights to do so. He is the king who receives all kinds of opposition who's willing to be opposed so that he can save. And he loves to save us. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, God, for your goodness to us. And we're thankful so much for the grace that you show us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus. God, for anyone that's here today who hasn't yet embraced your love, who hasn't yet embraced your grace, I pray for them. Father, today, by your Spirit, would you open your eyes to the saving knowledge and truth of what you have done for them, Jesus, and would you let them know that you love them with an everlasting and eternal love. I pray, God, that you would show them what it means to know you, that today they would turn from sin and repentance, and they would trust you as Savior and Lord. And I pray, God, for those of us that are here that do know you, oh, over today and tomorrow, may we celebrate and rejoice in the incarnation of Jesus the Son. May we celebrate and rejoice that he is the king. May we celebrate and rejoice that he loves to save. May we celebrate and rejoice that he is the Christ, the Lord, the Savior. And may we be reminded of those truths over these days as we gather with family and friends. And God, with the people we will gather who don't know you, may you open doors into their lives for us to share who Christ is. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the benediction, I would like to uh, take a moment to recognize and to thank Pastor Duane. Um, for those of you that don't know, Pastor Duane is the interim pastor here. He's been with us since September, and he's done a wonderful job these past few months of communicating and sharing God's word with us, and we are so thankful. And I'd say we're going to miss you, but you became members uh, a few weeks ago. So we're very thankful for that. Uh, Duane and Amy became members, and we're looking forward to worshiping with you on Sundays and to serving alongside of you. Amen. Can I just pray for you, brother? Of course. Please pray with me. Father God, we give you thanks uh, for your servant, Duane. Lord, we thank you for his faithful and skillful uh, teaching and opening of your word. Lord, we thank you for the encounters with Jesus uh, that he's communicated to us. Lord, I pray that the seeds that have been sown will bear much fruit. Mm. 
And Lord, as he uh, finishes this, uh, this chapter, Lord, you have much in store for your servant. So Lord, I would just pray that you bless him in his ministry and wherever he goes. Lord, be with his family this Christmas season. Lord, I pray that you give him a time of rest, of relaxation. Uh, just bless them, Lord, I pray. And we thank you. But all praise goes to Jesus, and we thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. As, as our benediction today from Luke chapter 2 for this Christmas. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. It's for everyone. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Amen? Amen. And Merry Christmas. God bless you. <laughs>